Hello and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I said Particular Good, not Particularly Good. It's a name, not a claim. I'm Charles Hughes Huff, Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry. And I'm here with Heather Hughes Huff, Adjunct Professor of English Literature. Hello, Heather. Hello, Charles. Today we're going to talk about 20th century German theology again, aren't we? Indeed, Heather. <laughs> a couple episodes back, we talked with Sister Nancy Hawkins about Dorothy Zola. And today, we're going to talk with Evan Keen about Ernst Trosch. We also heard from Dr. Matt Kuhner about von Balthasar, if you think about it. We did. We surely did. We teach theology here at St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry, and we are interested in what people love about theology, which often means 20th century Germans. <laughs> it's the particular good people love, and those things lead us to the stars, don't they? They lead us right up to <laughs> contemplation. I'm not letting you write this out again. <laughs> here at St. Bernard's, we offer degrees in theology, pastoral studies, Christian philosophy, and certificates in the fine arts, catechesis, and bioethics. That we do, and they can be completed entirely online from anywhere in the world or at one of our campuses in Rochester, Buffalo, Syracuse, or Albany. So who is this Evan Keen person, anyway? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Evan Keen is a friend of mine, and he's also the Assistant Professor of Information Liter- Literacy at North Park University. He completed his PhD in theology at the University of Chicago, where he was primarily known as the resident head who was always on top. <laughs> His book, Trollsch's Eschatological Absolute, was published with Oxford University Press in 2020. Well, let's talk to him. I absolutely can't (laughs) wait to hear Evan before the world ends. I should tell everyone right away that Evan is a friend of mine. We worked together as a resident heads at the University of Chicago for how many years did we do it together? Uh, Five years? Five years, six years, something like that, yeah. Yeah. And our children uh, are betrothed to each other of their own <laughs> accord. <laughs> I wish that I'd known more about your research, Evan, when we were, uh, I knew that you were working on trolls, and I probably could have come up with Eschatological Absolute. We talked about some of these things, but I found, um, I read this book and I found it incredibly fascinating and very relevant for someone who works on historical criticism of the Bible. <laughs> and um, so I'm really pleased to be able to talk to you about Trolsch and his historicism and his eschatological absolute. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask is if you could just situate Trolsch for us. Who was he and what's he generally known for in modern theology? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So Trolsch... Ernst Trolsch was a uh, German theologian. He, his dates were he was born in 1865. Uh, he died rather prematurely in 1923. Mm. Uh, and uh, like you said, uh, his work is relevant for historical criticism of the Bible, although he wasn't a, a biblical scholar. Uh, his work is relevant for sociology of religion, although he was a theologian. Uh, Trelsch is usually best known as one of the key uh, members of the history of religion school, mm-hmm. which is a tradition of thought in German universities that, that developed toward the end of the 19th and into the early 20th century uh, that is basically could be looked at as a precursor for religious studies as we think of it today. Mm-hmm. Um, so a school of thought that, that looked at religion not necessarily from a, a normative theological perspective, uh, but as a, um, as a historical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this developed, uh, it, it had been developing as European scholars started to look at world religions, but I think the, the rubber really meets the road for the history of religion school when people like Trelsch start saying, well, you know, if we're going to study Buddhism this way, if we're going to study Islam this way, then we ought to study our own religion this way as well. Mm -hmm. So it's closely connected with historical criticism. Uh, It's closely connected uh, with sociology of religion. Um, And he's best known for um, for that critical turn within theology uh, upon the Christian religion itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on who's reading him, that can be seen as a real 
destructive turn in theology. Right. Uh, sometimes he's seen as sort of the death knell of this confident 19th century liberalism that, that then just sort of um, falls apart uh, in the face of historical criticism. Uh, lots of times he's actually used as a, um, as a proto-postmodernist or a proto-pluralist. Oh, interesting. If you think about like pluralistic approaches to interreligious dialogue, they see Charles as someone who sort of paved the way for that as well. Okay. And you, I assume, because you, you took this up as a, as a constructive theological project for your right. work uh, as a graduate student at the University of Chicago. So I assume that you don't approach uh, Trolsch as someone who historicized Christianity out of existence. Right, not out of existence. He, he definitely historicized it. So in that, in that sense, I, kinda, I, I go along with this majority report on Trolsch. Um, but I think there, there's more to it than just, you know, some of the, some of the implications that people draw from his, uh, work, I think, uh, are drawn too quickly and don't recognize the constructive aspects of his work and the, and the way that he actually builds up a, a Christian theology worth talking about. Okay. Very good. The particular angle that you're taking on this in, uh, Charles's eschatological absolute is, um, well, eschatological. And I, you start the book by talking about the rise of apocalypticism, especially as a way of understanding Jesus of Nazareth mm -hmm. in the 20th century, and um, you know how important that's been for not only New Testament studies, but theology, especially mm -hmm. the kind of theology that's reacting to uh, modern liberalism in Christianity. How does Trulsch interact with that? apocalypticism and how is his concept of eschatology different from it yeah i felt like it it first this project that i was working on with with Trell required a bit of ground clearing because when people hear the word eschatology uh they may have a range of options in mind you know you, someone might know about like a pre-millennial versus post-millennial or a, a realized eschatology um but they, they often think certain things when they think of eschatology, and they don't necessarily think of what Trelsch was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the real turning point for this, I think, was the turn of the century uh, when apocalypticism became a major program of research for primarily New Testament scholars, uh, but but also uh, Hebrew Bible scholars and, and historians of religion. Um, there was this recognition, and it began as early as the Enlightenment. Uh, so Rymaris was a, a philosopher and, and critic who, in the 18th century, sort of recognized some of this. But especially in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, there was a recognition that uh, Jesus of Nazareth wasn't actually... Uh, this nice uh, bourgeois liberal <laughs> Sermon on the Mount uh, savior, he was an apocalyptic Jewish prophet mm -hmm. uh, who came uh, declaring uh, the imminent end of the world and coming of the kingdom, uh, which is a very different way of understanding the roots of the Christian faith uh, and one that doesn't mesh very well with certain uh, 19th century trends in theology that, that sought to derive sort of modern moral principles directly from Jesus, mm -hmm. um, that sought to understand church and society a certain way directly from Jesus. Um, so this turn to apocalypticism, it's not as shocking today. You know, there's, there's lots of work on, uh, you know, the apocalyptic Paul or, you know, using the apocalyptic roots of our faith to speak against colonialism or mm -hmm. empire. Yeah. So it really has embedded itself in our uh, self-understanding of the faith. But at the time, it, it really wrecked people's um, understanding of who Jesus was uh, and and what uh, what our ultimate goal is um, in history, um, according to the Christian faith. Uh, so Trelsch, 
uh, that's a long sort of intro to apocalypticism there. Yeah. Um, wasn't a New Testament scholar, uh, but he, he was good friends, for instance, with uh, Johannes Weiss, who was an important New Testament scholar and also part of this history of religion school. So he was very up to speed on the latest research on apocalypticism mm-hmm. um, and sort of uh, took it as a given, you know, that, that this was the best historical understanding of Jesus of Nazareth. Um the the key issue at this point then, and, and the decision that theologians would have to make is, um, is biblical Christianity relevant anymore? Mm-hmm. You know, if the apocalyptic Jesus is so different from how we think of the faith now, um, are we? is there just a parting of the ways with historical faith? Or can we understand our faith differently than Jesus of Nazareth did and understand what it means, uh, what the, the final things of the world mean for us. It, you know, the, the world didn't come to a cataclysmic end in, in 30 uh, AD or 70 AD. We're still here. So we need to, we need to regroup and, and figure out how we, what our self understanding of the faith is. So, and, you know, the new Testament says this is referred to as like, uh, the problem of the delay of the parousia right. and, and sort of when, when Jesus didn't immediately come back, then what does the early church do to make sense of it? The same sort of like need to make sense of where do we go from here uh, came in, in the early 20th century with this new recognition of apocalypticism. And I think most of us are more familiar with the 20th century story where, um, where, where Bart and, and certain Bardian, you know, certain dialectical theologians sort of leaned into uh, the biblical narrative and, and created a new way of, of understanding the faith, uh, or else of uh, new apocalyptic genres of, um, you know, the Left Behind series and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Trelsch offers a, a different option, recognizes that we are very different in how we see the world and understand our faith than Jesus of Nazareth was, but that there are good theological reasons to do that regrouping project and seek to understand eschatology in a, in a way that's adequate to our modern understanding, but still speaks to um, the work of God uh, in our lives. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Trolsch is you, he's saying, okay, this is not the... the we're not. There's not going to be a this worldly apocalypse um, with fire and horses and uh, this kind of right. left behind thing. Um, but instead, we're going to talk about this as something sort of outside of history, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But is this for him still connected to that message in some way, or is this uh, more of a philosophical position about eschatology that? all religions end up at. Um, so yeah. I, is, this, is, is Jesus' message taken up and sort of uh, understood in a philosophical way by him, or is he uh, just really sort of saying, this is, this, Jesus thought one thing, we think another? That's a good question. Uh, I think Charles was pretty comfortable saying he felt one thing, we think another. He makes it. He has a, an essay on logos and mythos in Christianity, mm-hmm. and and he talks about like we're always in danger of falling back into myth. Uh, and I think he would be pretty comfortable identifying Jesus's apocalypticism as a sort of uh, myth that we don't want to have too much to do with. Uh, at the same time, he's he's not just rejecting it as useless. I think he sees. Um, he also sees that these mythological understanding of, um, you know, roads paved with gold and horses coming, uh, you know, from on high, he sees those as uh, symbolic illustrations for people to make sense of something um, that, that is more sort of rarefied and, and philosophical. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's against these sort of imagistic kind of conceptions of it. Uh, but he certainly draws a line and, and, and says, you know, if this is exactly how we understand the end, we're, we're kind of misunderstanding the heart of what the gospel is. And he would point elsewhere in scripture and he would point to 
moral teachings um, or, um, you know, to more more basic understandings of that sort and still say that, you know, these have their roots in Jesus's proclamation as a, a Hebrew prophet who, who began the, the Christian religion. Uh, but yeah, he would, he, he, he doesn't have much time for, um, you know, exegeting some of those apocalyptic passages sure. too carefully as if they speak to what we're trying to talk about today. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. He's thinking of eschatology as something beyond, and, and, and he connects this to the absolute. So everything that we encounter, everything we can read about in history, everything that will happen in our lives is contingent and related to cause, causality within the world. Mm-hmm. And for him, there's something outside of that um, that is not determined. Um, mm-hmm. And he is drawing on this Kantian tradition of the absolute to explain that. Can you talk about um, Kant's formulation of the absolute and then how it developed a little bit? Didn't yeah, you know, yeah. German idealism and romanticism. Yeah, sure. And I should, I'll, I'll say before, you know, getting into the philosophical history of it, one question that I kept asking myself as, you know, as I read Trelsch, um, the absolute is, is, is a, a difficult concept to, to wrap your hands around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the way you described it is great. What, what I have sort of come to think when Trelsch uses the term, if we want to translate it into theological terms that we're maybe more familiar with, mm-hmm. um, I think the absolute is something like uh, eternity. Um, and it's, it's not so different from eternity the way that someone like uh, Augustine talks about eternity, because he has the same question of, well, how does this relate to time? How does this relate to our temporal existence? Mm-hmm. So, um, so thinking of it in terms of eternity, maybe in terms of ultimate reality, I think is a good start for seeing what he's getting at. Uh, but like you said, you know, the, the term the absolute itself, at least in its modern form, largely comes from Kant. And um, Immanuel Kant talked about it a bit, and especially in uh, philosophers who built on his thought, it became a big theme. So um, for Kant, the absolute, it's not something that we can we can ever like know or achieve in itself, mm-hmm. uh, but it's something that human reason tracks with Right. as a precondition for any of our more uh, mundane, everyday knowledge. So like you said, if something is absolute, uh, then s- something is the case unconditionally without reference to any other contingencies, without reference to any phenomenal limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, so as rational beings, uh, we need some sort of sense of the absolute. We need a sense that um, there are things that are not simply a result of the, the contingent flow of, of history or the, the manifold of phenomena that lay before us uh, in order to uh, develop a more coherent sense of the whole, to, to think of reality as meaningful and cohering. Yeah. Um, but precisely because of that, because the absolute goes beyond anything we can uh, point to, uh, or that we can know as like an object of knowledge, um, it is, uh, you could say it's transcendent um, from human understanding at the same time. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was Kant's understanding of the absolute. And it comes up some in his writings. Uh, he, he talks about it a lot in, in relation to the sublime. So things that are just so, such great magnitudes and reference to, the infinite that they sort of just leave us in awe. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't deal with the absolute too directly beyond that because Kant is so strict about the limits of human reason. And although reason is, is formed by, by some of this sort of, uh, sense of the absolute, it's not something that we can actually put our, our fingers on. Um, and that, that, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, yeah. So this is like, that we, it's like the thing that that provides a condition for rationality, but that rationality can't exactly uh, touch, tand- touch, taste, handle, right. see. How, how would you describe Kant's absolute to something familiar 
to St. Bernard's students something like uh, Thomas's idea of God, where uh, I guess for, for, for Thomas, God is this unmoved mover and is outside mm-hmm. of the whole show. He's not part mm-hmm. of the show. It's outside the show. Everything is, um, hangs on him, right? But yep. somehow, uh, as I tell me if I'm right about this, as, as Thomas describes it, everything that exists takes its internal meaning in itself from this unmoved mover beyond the show, the absolute ground of existence. Mm-hmm. And when we look at those things, they're sort of saturated by that presence in a way. So right. the whole universe becomes coherent in those terms. So the metaphysic is of a piece. Whereas for Kant, he is saying um, that the absolute is, is a little different than that because it's not what you can see in any contingent reality. It's more outside of human rationality and you can't derive it from anything. Is that, is that, it's more of a condition than a, is that at all correct? Yeah. No, I think that, I think that's pretty fair. And although the sort of cosmological argument, um, Kant critiques traditional proofs for the existence of God right. uh, as not being able to get there. But that idea of a sort of unconditioned condition is very similar to his understanding of uh, this absolute. And uh, so we, you know, we talk about Kant's philosophy as uh, transcendental idealism. Mm-hmm. And when Kant uses the word transcendental as opposed to transcendent, um, yeah, a, a transcendental argument seeks to establish a condition for the possibility of something. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, given that, you know, humans know anything at all, you know, what conditions need to be in place. And um, so there's still this sense of um, this ultimate ground for things in Kant. And it's a little different. And I think what's most different, and this will actually play into, uh, you know, when you think about, people writing after Kant in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. What's most different with Kant is uh, what is the status of our knowledge of that thing? How, to, what, to what extent can we say um, that, that we have knowledge of the absolute uh, or that, that it can be an object of knowledge for us? Right. Um, and that's why Kant sounds like something like a skeptic about God because he, he's very strict about... He, the famous line from, from Kant um, is that he... Um, denies knowledge to make room for faith. Um, so, so there's a strict knowledge-faith distinction there yeah. um, in a way that would be different for certain theologians um, and Thomas and the Thomas tradition included. Sure, yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Good. So I, I interrupted you. You were, you were talking oh. about Kant's um, absolute and then uh, how Fichte and Schilling took it, uh, took, ran with it, and Hegel. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Kant, and like I said, Kant actually doesn't talk about the absolute much, but he lays this groundwork um, where uh, philosophers like Schelling and Fichte and Hegel are are the three of the best known ones probably in the idealistic tradition, um, see what Kant is doing and and creating a, a comprehensive system of human knowledge of uh, understanding, uh, how we operate as rational creatures and uh, take his lead, but, but thinks that, you know, he, he made some mistakes along the way, or, or he just sort of broke into this new way of, of understanding human reason and, and they're going to complete the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they all do this in various ways. And, and one of um, the points that we start to see a shift from Kant to the German idealists is this foregrounding of the absolute as this, grounding concept, this, this basic foundation of human knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it gets interpreted as sort of a, a ground of all being that encompasses subject, so the knowing subject and the known object, mm-hmm. um, and, and then becomes a precondition for our knowledge. Um, and then, you know, in, in a Hegelian sort of understanding uh, that, that I think is maybe broadly known as a, a popular sort of interpretation of idealistic thought, there's, there's a dialectic that takes place where the, the absolute spirit um, is developing through history uh, toward a, a full sort of consummation of itself. So these are much more, um, they're much 
bolder interpretations of the absolute than Kant offered. Yeah. Uh, but they're seeking to do the same thing of grounding human understanding um, and historical understanding in uh, that which is um, which is beyond our, our immediate um, subjective understanding, I guess. That might not be the best way of putting it. But that, that's kind of what's, what's going on, especially like in the first half of, of the 19th century. Okay. The, uh, and another uh, set of folks that uh, I think are important for understanding where Trulsch is drawing this idea from uh, are the, the, the German Romantic tradition. Yeah. Um, so um, these uh, philosophers and, uh, and literary figures can be a little bit harder to interpret. Um, and, and I think my sense is in the scholarship on German Romanticism, um, some interpret them as more Kantian, as, as drawing this sort of strict line between, uh, between what we can know and the absolute, and others interpret them more in an idealistic fashion where that, that line isn't so, the absolute isn't so unreachable for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend, I tend to read the German Romantics uh, as a bit closer to Kant. Um, so uh, Novalis has this great line, uh, that uh, I actually thought of using it as, as like an opening quote for the book of uh, we seek the absolute everywhere, but only ever find things. Uh, yeah. So there's this you know, sharp distinction between the things of this world and the absolute. So all of this is going on in the 19th century to, to develop in the wake of older natural theologies and theological understandings to develop a coherent account of our world and how our world is is rational and conceivable by human knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that's sort of what this project is going on that that Trulsch is drawing from. Yeah, that makes sense. But and he is interested in that as a theoretical question, uh, which is why he focuses on history, as I as I discovered from your book. But then he <laughs> also does not follow someone like Haeckel in seeing the absolute as manifested in the processes of history, right? Right. Uh, he instead places it in this eschatological realm, which is itself outside of human history. Yeah. So how does, how does he, con- what does he do to, to eschatologize the absolute? How, what does that mean for him? Yeah. So, um, so like you said, I think, uh, Trosh understands the absolute, uh, in a way that's similar to Kant, but but he's also operating from the hindsight of Hegel and various evolutionary understandings of human history that were popular in the century before mm-hmm. he wrote. Uh, so um, so he he offers what I like to think of as kind of a, a Kant, but with a historical turn. Um, so he he recognizes the absolute as a term that doesn't just apply to anything in history, including uh, the Christian faith, um, that we can't say that our faith is absolute in any sense. Uh, but he also recognizes that, that there's a, a historical story to tell here, and this is where he's developing beyond Kant, but with Kantian tools. So uh, he sees, Trump sees the absolute as um, filling historical life with, with vitality and meaningfulness, I think, as filling it with with spirit in some ways mm-hmm. and, and guiding historical creatures like us toward uh, meaningful futures, you know, what you might call an eschatology. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but he does that by, by, um, by recognizing that it has very much to do with um, this modern process of eschatologizing the absolute. Uh, that he has a very modern modernist assumptions about how we approach history and how history is different from ultimate reality. Mm-hmm. And so how the, the absolute is this sort of religious spirit that, that leads us beyond history. Mm-hmm. So that, that looks like a, um, it's not exactly the old teleology where, our meaning and our human nature points us in itself toward the beautification. Mm-hmm. It's more that it, 
we out here in historical contingency are conditioned uh, by the absolute through a type of yearning. How, are those different concepts? Um, yeah. So um, the the question of whether it's a teleology is a good one because I think similar to the, to eschatology, when people hear the word teleology, they think certain things, um, and they think a very strong form of teleology, which is fine. Um, Truss is willing to use the word teleology here and there, um, but he, he'll refer to it as something like a, a teleology of history. Mm-hmm. Um, so he doesn't see history as playing out teleologically from some ultimate end game that that sort of lawfully leads everything exactly where it's supposed to go he sees the future is open to us Ah, but um this the way that um that he traces our our position within history to the absolute is like you said there's a there's a sort of basic human yearning for it Mm -hmm. um and i think a good way to to think about this uh, is he uses the language of reason. He uses the language of a chain of reasons, yeah. uh, which comes up, I think it, I think it originally comes up in Kant, but especially uh, Schelling uses this language too. Um, so it's present in German idealism. This chain of reason, if you want to think about it in terms of the principle of sufficient reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this basic philosophical principle that um, anything has, and anything, um, has a reason or a cause behind it that we can get to the bottom of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same as, you know, when your four-year-old asks the why question to everything. Yeah. Um, there's, that, there's that basic human component of recognizing that there is a sufficient reason for anything. And that's what the chain of reasons is. So why is this uh, historically contingent event the case? Well, we trace back a chain of contingencies. We, we trace back a chain of causes um, and sometimes these causes are complicated, and sometimes they're not altogether clear. Um, but we can trace back this chain of reasons so that um, so that history, to use actually to use a, a phrase from uh, Stanley Hauerwas, so that history isn't just one damn thing after another. Um, <laughs> it's something that you know. It, it's not just this irrational manifold of phenomena that's that's hitting us yeah. uh, we can make sense of it because we can trace back reasons for what is happening um and Trost does that he actually he when he talks about eschatology and what it is he he does this in a kind of a, a chauvinistic european way where he um that doesn't really pass muster today he talks about like uh primitive people and primitive religions as having this short chain of reasons. So why did the flood come? Well, they jump really quickly to, you know, the water God was angry with us or something like that. You know, that's just one jump to explain causality there. Um, And then he says, you know, as human civilization develops into modern understandings of science, these chains of reasons, these questions of why does reality do what it does get longer and longer and longer because we push out the old gods and the old demons as immediate causes of historical reality. Mm -hmm. uh, And we have natural explanations for things that used to be filled in by God or spirits. Um, And so what that does is it, it pushes ultimate explanation. It pushes uh, the absolute off into the margins, uh, which has often been explained as sort of a secularization process. Right. Uh, but for Trelsch, what it is, is an eschatologization. Hmm. Uh, if, you're, if you're pushing the ultimate outside of the realm of historical and natural explanation, what you've reached is a veritable eschatology. And it's not the sort of mythological apocalypse that the biblical writers talk about. It's not an eschatology that we can actually, you know, point to the angelic army that's descending upon us. It's a legitimate eschatology because it puts the absolute where it should be. It puts eternity where it should be, beyond the reach of, of uh, temporal understanding. Yeah. Uh, and it's a yearning because we can never get there, uh, because while we seek the absolute and we seek the, 
the basic foundation of, of the meaningfulness of our lives, we can never find it in history itself. We have to look beyond history um, to that which is absolute, which now is uh, fundamentally eschatological in a way that uh, it wasn't before. Yeah, yeah. It so it's sense. a weird flip. It's like normally we think of modernity as crowding out this eschatological under, or this, uh, this spiritual understanding, but he's saying, no, actually what happens in modern science is what has to happen for us to really see uh, he wouldn't use these terms, but to really see the supernatural as beyond our natural understanding. Right. Not, uh, not the greatest possible conceivable being, but something outside of all of the contingency we encounter. Right, right. Yeah. It's interesting because I see why someone would feel like, okay, how do we keep the Christian story uh, with God entering into history, right? Right. Uh, and this, I guess that's what you were you refer to as dialectical theology in the book. Um, yeah. Sort of the Bartian God breaking into history and redeeming right. through history. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see why that would trouble them, but what he's saying isn't, um, he is saying we can't know anything from history directly into the absolute, but he's not, he's actually yeah, he, making God more transcendent in a certain way. Right, and he taught, in his, uh, one of his famous books is The Absoluteness of Christianity and the History of Religions, mm -hmm. uh, which, which has a bit of a confusing title because he's actually critiquing the absoluteness of Christianity. He's not uh, affirming it. Right. Uh, but he has a great line where he talks about the things of history as being tokens of the absolute. Um, so he, he recognizes that it, the absolute kind of bursts through all throughout history, mm -hmm. and we're always connected to it, uh, but that it is absolutely transcendent. But I think you're right to recognize sort of the stumbling block that's presented there and to, to pinpoint it in the incarnation, right? Yeah. Um, because uh, there is no, you know, we might talk about, you know, tokens of the absolute, you know, that history is shot through with spiritual significance, and you don't need to be a Christian to say that. Yeah. Um, but the central truth of divine self-revelation in Jesus of Nazareth does become much more difficult to justify on the basis of Trulsch's theology. Yeah. And to be honest, um, theologians will distinguish between uh, Christocentrism and theocentrism. Mm -hmm. So basically, wh whether you put your doctrine of, of Christ in the center or this more general theistic like doctrine of God, yeah. and Trulsch is definitely a theocentric theologian who I don't think it's too strong to say has a relatively weak Christology. Yeah. Um, by his own criteria, it's not weak. I mean, he does with Christology what makes sense within his system, but you're not going to get uh, an adequately uh, classical understanding of the incarnation of God in, in Christ and Trulsch. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's worth recognizing um, for theologians working today who want to recognize the significance of Charles's work, um, there are certain things that I think are, can contribute a lot, and there are other places where theologians might find his work, find it wanting. Um, and, yeah. and, and you've pinpointed that, is, is that sort of how exactly does it break into history, and what does that allow us to say or to not say about our, our creedal affirmations? That's, that's striking to me. He seems almost... Um... I like how transcendent his theology uh -huh. is, uh, but what he's been criticized for is not that it's too transcendent, but rather that it's monist, or what I think of as almost overly in imminent, uh, mm -hmm. pantheist um, sort of theology. Uh, you bring out that, that people have accused him of this, but that he that's really not a, a very accurate understanding of him, right? So he's talking about human history as yearning for the absolute over and against contingency mm -hmm. but his emphasis on the historical contingency of human knowledge along with the metaphysics that he allows for history is the right. thing that you you pointed to that makes it uh that opens him up to um accusation of being a, a monist uh can you talk about uh the foreclosure of metaphysics and history that we get 
with earlier theologians, and then Trolsch's interest in the metaphysics of, of history, but why he still is a dualist. Yeah, and this is something, uh, if you read even a bit of Trolsch, it's it should be quickly apparent that he is not a monist. He's not a, a pantheist of some sort. He's not a naturalist. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's understandable why he gets pegged with this sort of accusation. Um, and it goes back to the beginning of our conversation where he introduces um, historical critical methodology and sociological understandings to religion and um and is does not accept other uh, ways of, of understanding the faith. Um, so um, I think the reason why he gets mistaken as a monist is because he rejects uh, supernaturalism, uh, which can mean you know different things. But uh, when he, when Trelsch rejects it, what he's rejecting is this absolute reference point that we can know and point to as uh, a cause of historical life and know uh, as something that's true without reference to our particular human historical contingencies. Mm -hmm. Um, So when he says he rejects supernaturalism, um, and he almost doesn't even bother to reject it. He really just dismisses it as not even worth thinking about um, in some of his work. Um, it's almost like beneath contempt for him. You can really tell as you read him. That sounds a lot like naturalism to people in the yeah. sense of like materialism. It right. sounds like nature is all there is. Right. Um, but really, um, and this this came up w- during Charles's life. This isn't just sort of how he's remembered, but monism was like the hot thing uh in the latter half of the 19th century, especially when Darwinian evolution was just becoming really popular. Um, and so um, this almost the sort of like new atheism that, that was big, you know, a decade ago, yeah. um, there was sort of that sense of a, a scientism um, that was really intent on recognizing that um, we can answer all the questions about reality and, and that there is nothing beyond this sort of scientific evolutionary understanding. So, so Trump's got swept up in, in that more general understanding of the period, um, but he emphatically rejected it um, because he thought that monism was ethically and historically incoherent. Yeah. Um, it wasn't even that it, it was just sort of an incorrect conclusion, but uh, Charles recognized that you need some sort of transcendence um, to, to sort of bootstrap your way beyond just mere neurons firing responsively. Um, we, in order to make value judgments or statements of facts of the matter or to interpret reality as as significant or coherent or recognizable, um, there needs to be some sort of transcendence present. Um, And so for for Trelts, that was sort of a a transcendence of spirit. Um, But he he harshly criticized the monists of the time, and I think got associated with them uh, because of a a real unfortunate misunderstanding, um, a... um, a suspicion about certain ways of doing metaphysics uh, because uh, the, the, the way he talked and, and, and what he criticized and his embrace of certain forms of metaphysics seemed to uh, assert that all reality was a piece, was of a piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there wasn't this ultimate distinction between nature and spirit, um, but when certain theologians and certain philosophers at the turn of the century heard the word metaphysics come out of Trelsch's mouth, <laughs> um, they assumed that there wasn't that sharp nature-spirit dichotomy um, that it's, is pretty central to the Christian faith. Um, so, uh, so that's where the confusion comes from, and I think these days the confusion maybe mostly just comes from the fact that he uses something like a methodological naturalism. He doesn't make appeals to supernatural causes. Yeah. And so there, there's this assumption that, you know, because of that, he's some sort of uh, 
monist who, who doesn't recognize a, a separate spiritual realm, uh, when in fact he was always pretty clear about the fact that, that he rejected that. Yeah. Well, that, that brings me to the next question, which is, okay, so if he's rejecting supernaturalism and not a monist, uh, he sees the absolute as outside and, and, and eschatological reality, but he, mm-hmm. like you said, when we were talking about Jesus and the Incarnation, um, he does see the absolute as coming through moments in history mm-hmm. um, and sees it as something that could be experienced beyond just a yearning for it. Um, mm-hmm. as, I, as I understand from the book. So uh, my understanding of supernatural is not so different from that, <laughs> I guess, you know, beyond the right. sort of, uh, pro- you know, not a sort of um, uh, someone like Delubach or, you know, 20th century defensive right, supernaturalism. Right. Uh, but anyway, so, but, but he, he thinks uh, that the absolute can kind of be experienced and, can inflect itself in history to some degree, um, perhaps not by uh, interrupting any of the chain of causality, but um, but through a sort of uh, human condition for experience itself. Is is that um, fair? This uh, yeah. yeah yeah. So um, this and and this was uh, when when we've established that there's some sort of dualism present in Trelsch between, uh, you know, the historical and the eternal or, or nature and spirit or whatever you want to call it. Uh, then the next question is, yeah, well, does that mean we devolve into some sort of skepticism where we have zero knowledge of, of God and divine things? And it's clear throughout Trelsch um, that uh, there's something like religious knowledge. He calls it different things. Uh, sometimes he, he refers to it as, uh, faith knowledge. Yeah. Uh, he'll he'll talk about religious experience, um, or an ex- he'll even talk about an experience of the absolute. So it's clear that um, he wants to preserve. Uh, you know, he might not be concerned about like having a real thick understanding of the incarnation and us connecting with the divine that way. But he really wants to recognize that the people's people of faith have a real experience of the divine or of the absolute. Um, But the question is, yeah, how, how do we get at that? And it's something like um, a transcendental condition for experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it, uh, so he, he never really establishes through his career some like he never wrote a book called religious experience where he lays it all out. He sort of seems to me to kind of constantly have this aspect of religious faith, uh, in the back of his mind, you know, he's a, he's a historian of religion. So he recognizes that there are these sort of faith experiences of people that's important, but then how best to make sense of it on a theological level. Mm -hmm. Um, so starting from this initial agnosticism, of, you know, we do not know the divine the way that we know that, you know, this table in front of me is hard and wood. We, he's not a, the divine isn't an ab- object of knowledge to us in the same way. Mm-hmm. He builds up uh, what the, the most famous uh, attempt that Trelsch makes at this is what's called the religious a priori. Right. Um, and other people around uh his time of writing talk about the religious a priori. It ha- actually was kind of a, a popular way of talking. Um, I don't know. I don't know if Charles originated at it, but he's certainly most associated with it. Yeah. And it is this sense of uh, it's actually, again, drawing from Kant. Um, Kant doesn't talk about the religious a priori, but he talks about the a priori as an important aspect of human reason. So something um, that's known uh, without reference to experience. Um, so in, empirical knowledge that we have would be like a, a, poster, a posteriori knowledge. Yeah. Um, and a priori knowledge is something that's just sort of known in itself. Um, so that's how he refers to this religious knowledge, this religious experience. Um, and just like Kant as well, he sees this as the basis of, of more general mundane forms of human knowledge. Um, the way I like to think about it actually is to go to the, the uh, biblical language, like in the Psalms of 
um, in your light, we see light. Huh. Uh, so this idea that um, there's this more basic light, there's this more basic experience of ultimate reality um, that grounds our mundane historical experience of anything else. Um, and it grounds it because it makes sense of it. it. We are able to talk about it in terms of, of values and of um, valid concepts that are more generally applicable to things. Uh, again, it's what distinguishes us from just being sort of creatures that take in reality as a manifold of so many uh, uh, irrational uh, perceptions that just come at us. There, there's something transcendent that we grounded in that, that makes it coherent and purposeful and meaningful. So for him, this religious a priori isn't merely a transcendental rationality for religious experience alone, but for values, ethics. Is it something different than... Huh. Um, I, go ahead. He, would, he would say... Charles would say that, I mean, he calls it the religious a priori because it is specific to religion. Mm -hmm. and, and one thing that's interesting about Charles that is, is maybe different from a lot of how religious studies has developed since him, he wants to stake out the territory of religion as, as a concept that, that's worth recognizing in itself. Yeah. Um, so he, you know, he wouldn't reduce religion to culture or something like that. Um, but for him also, religion is at base um, a matter of ethics and value judgments. When he, when he talks about religions that aren't fully like ethical religions, that don't have a, a sort of moral framework, he almost sees them as, um, as not fully developed religions. Yeah. Um, so he would say it's religion, but he also sees it as, like you said, a, a broader application in terms of, of an ethical and, and val valuing sort of a, approach to the world around us. Yeah, that makes sense. This sort of contemplation of the whole or the absolute outside of us gives us the light to look around and have religious experiences, but also give meaning or understand meaning in the world um yeah it goes back to the chain of reasons like um when i'm you know if i'm conducting a scientific study about something sitting in front of me i might not refer back to this you know religious a priori yeah. but ultimately everything is there and makes sense you know because of this ultimate ground yeah that makes sense and this is not uh reducible to psychology either this is uh, not sentiment right. this is uh, a way of uh it's a rush it's a kind of rationality correct yeah. yeah it reminds me of otto he i think you mentioned mm -hmm. in the book that he really liked the idea of the holy is that right yeah, when uh, Otto's uh, book on the idea of the holy came out, Charles wrote a. It was, I think, it was a pretty extensive re review. It was more of a review essay, um, and he, I mean, uh, he was was largely uh, excited about the work and and, and uh, had a, a positive review of it. So uh, there are connections there, I think, to be made. Yeah, interesting. Well, that's good. So. Um, can you say a little bit more? In the book, you talk about um, this religious a priori and its relationship with the logic of conception formation. I think that's just what we were talking about um, precisely. But uh, this is the one part of the book where I felt a little over my head. <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't sure how to, to pull this apart. So he is the logic of concept formation and how mm -hmm. this works with um, with a sort of religious experience sense. How, can you talk more about that? Logic of yeah. and and um, how that it determines the experience and not isn't determined by the experience? So um, the logic of concept formation comes from uh, Heinrich Rickert, who was contemporary to Trelsch, he was a philosopher, not a theologian, and he would be considered a neo-Kantian of some sort. So, so toward the end of the 19th century, neo-Kantianism um, revived a lot of, of Kant's understanding. Um, sort of after the uh, 
the hangover of, of Hegelian uh, idealism wore off in German thought. Um, there was this return to science. There was this return um, to uh, to trying to, to stake out kind of a Kantian epistemology. Mm -hmm. And Heinrich Rickert was one who did that primarily for the historical sciences, the, the human sciences. Um, he wanted to um, establish a, a logic of them so that they could be um, they could enjoy sort of general validity. Mm -hmm. um, and I was actually thinking about this. You had uh, Jason Blakely on a previous episode. Yeah. Uh, one way to think about this is um, he was talking about like naturalistic approaches to sociology. Right. Um, so this sort of scientism that, that uh, the human sciences should operate like the hard sciences. Right. Um, one thing, one way to think about the project that Heinrich Rickert was doing, and some other folks were doing it too, Charles was one of them, uh, Wilhelm Diltheit, so a part of more of a hermeneutical tradition, right. um, they wanted to establish the human sciences, which for them would include sociology and things that, that Blakely was talking about, um, as having their own distinct logic and rationality from uh, the, the natural sciences. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's where this concept of this concept of concept formation comes from. If you think of a concept as uh, having a generalizing function, um, so we have all this human reality, historical reality coming at us, and we want to make sense of it. Um, so we group it into concepts. You know, we talk about we talk about the Christian religion as a whole. Um, you know, that that has certain impulses, um, certain histories, and a certain coherence to it. Yeah. Um, that sort of concept formation is what makes history or sociology or theology uh, rational. It's what makes it uh, universally valid, not just an expressivistic uh you know, uh, outpouring of what I think the faith should be, or, you know, what I think the, the history of the Napoleonic Wars should be, mm -hmm. but something that's actually uh, universally valid in the sense that it can be read and rationally criticized by other people. Yeah. Um, so we form these concepts, not because we read them off of history, not because any particular event gives them to us, but because we make value judgments about history, mm -hmm. um, because um, because we we say that this is significant um, for this or that reason, and that's how we group these concepts and how we make rational sense of them. Mm -hmm. um, so, in a way, it's it's not uh, we're not talking about religious experience here, right? Um, and and this uh, when when Heinrich Rickert talks about this. Um, he's just trying to establish basically a logic of history yeah. so that historians can do their work and feel confident that they're adequately Wissenschaftler, that they're, you know, they're, yeah. they're adequately scientific in the modern university. <laughs> Trouch, though, takes this talk of concept formation and runs with it, runs with it further than, than Heinrich Ricker would be comfortable with because <laughs> Rickard isn't a theologian or a metaphysician of any sort, yeah. um, and says, you know, this is what I'm talking about here. This, this sort of um, universally valid concept formation is a, is a recognition that value judgments are central to our rational understanding of human existence. Mm -hmm. And where do these value judgments come from? They don't come from history themselves. Themselves, They come from beyond history. They are, um, we, we have to have a, an under, a, a metaphysics of history that recognizes some um, transcendent reference point, even when we're just talking about historical experience. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what makes our human experiences Ultimately, even when we don't understand them as such, that's what makes them religious experiences. Hmm. Um, that's what connects us to um, the, the ultimately spiritual uh, foundation of our world and what makes our world uh, purposeful uh, and meaningful, but, but really just uh, basically coherent is that transcendent reference point. Hmm. And that is where the religious opera comes in, because then we can make those transcendent 
judgments or correct trans- transcendental judgments on values within history and so on right right yeah there it's basically kind of a, a i think they're they're relatively uh similar ideas for trells and trells um when you read the secondary literature about literature about trells it's usually um the a priori is usually conveyed as something like it's an idea he came up with and then he dropped it at some point along in his career um he actually refers to the religious a priori even in some of his later writings here and there, um, even if he doesn't emphasize it. But yeah, I think either of those ways um, are, are kind of a good way of understanding Trulsch's transcendental approach to theology. Okay, very good. That's great. I think we've gone over your book, um, mm-hmm. Trulsch's Eschatological Absolute from Oxford University Press. Our discussion has broadly followed the outline of the book, and we've gone uh-huh. through your, your chapters on apocalypticism and eschatology of the absolute, the ontological implications, and the epistemological implications of the eschatological absolute. So uh, I would recommend the book to all of our listeners. But I also wanted to ask you, is there anything else you'd like to add, first of all? One thing I'd say, uh, and... I was thinking about this as we were talking about concept formation uh, to plug uh, the continued relevance of Trulsch. A lot of what I wanted to do in this book, it, it was a, a book sort of of theology, sort of of intellectual history, but mostly I want people to recognize that Trulsch is still relevant for how we think about religion today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always obvious how, because, okay, we have this metaphysics of the absolute, uh, so what's what's the takeaway from that? That's a pretty rarefied understanding of eschatology. Um, I took a stab at this in my conclusion. I looked at um, recent developments in what people call deep history. So understanding history not just as like human history since uh, you know the Neolithic period or whatever, but our place in in uh, this broader universe that's slowly dying, you know, yeah. <laughs> dying on a cosmic scale. So I, I sort of floated that as a, maybe Troll should be interesting to think about here. Um, another one that to point to that I think for folks at uh, St. Bernard's uh, seminary might be helpful is uh, one of the people writing today who talks the most about Trelsch actually isn't a theologian. Uh, his name is Hans Joas. So he's a social theorist. Uh, based in Chicago and Berlin, he actually holds the Ernst Trelsch chair in Berlin. Oh wow! Uh, and he has a a book that came out a little while ago. Called, he's a, oh, and I bring him up for St. Bernard's because he's a Catholic thinker. Oh, um, yeah. And uh, he wrote a book a few years ago called "The Sacredness of the Person," mm-hmm. that is a um, like a social theoretical uh, account of uh, human rights, basic human dignity. Yeah. And he has a chapter in there where he talks about Trelsch as sort of threading this line of, uh, of Nietzsche on the one hand, where everything is human all too human, um, this, this sort of genealogy that doesn't get us to anywhere constructive, and then Kant on the other hand, who has this um, understanding of, of the rational and of human morality beyond any reference to historical contingencies. And he points to Trelsch as a, a good way of thinking through how do we understand uh, ultimate human dignity from our historical contingency, but towards something that, that applies more generally than just our contingencies? Mm-hmm. So there are lots of places where something like the eschatological absolute might seem sort of like, um, you know, you're counting angels on the head of a pin, um, <laughs> But they have these implications for how we think of human value, how we think of our place in the universe. And I hope people read this and realize, you know, we should start reading Trelsch again, but then also we should start applying Trelsch to problems that we're thinking through today in new uh, and and novel ways. It feels uh, like if you've, speaking as a historical critic, there tend Mm -hmm. to be um, approaches to biblical texts that are purely historical critical and, mm-hmm. um, and religious anthropology and so on, or um, theory of religion, where you're, you're really starting with a very skeptical um, understanding in order to talk about how humans build these things up. And that can be very, very helpful in terms of getting to the real stuff of history and language and right. um, concepts and so on that are 
um, not falling out of the sky and hitting the dust, but part of real human history. But on the other hand, um, sometimes it doesn't leave you with much in terms of how to speak to a constructive theology or to a, um, mm-hmm. a horizon of hope, <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> and uh, Trolls is, is still doing that um, in a very rigorously historicist kind of way, still providing this, um, this something that's outside of all that, which is very interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, without sort of just stating it um, as the fact, you know, um, right. Talking about how it could be the case within this particular view of uh, rationality, um, sort of neo-Kantian thing, which I, I, it's very cool. Yeah. Um, How how did you happen across Trost yourself? What drew you into becoming a a Trost scholar? I don't remember starting to read Trost and thinking, this is great. I love this. Uh, actually, I remember, and I don't know when I first read him, but it was probably because I had to for a class. And I remember actually being unimpressed and thinking that it was kind of boring. Um, <laughs> the way I really got into him was I was much more of a, I liked Karl Barth. I liked this sort of stick it to theological liberalism. We have a, a better, more, more, uh, biblical and more um, adequately dogmatic theological way of, of understanding the faith. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where I began, mm-hmm. but I was interested in some of the 19th century problems that Bart was trying to fix. Yeah. So I went back and I read Kant, I read Hegel and Schleiermacher. And as I was doing that background reading, Trelsch really stuck out to me as the guy who put his finger on the problems of 19th century philosophy. Um, And so that's how I got interested in him. And then as I read more and more of him, I became much more of a Trelschian and much less of a Bardian and actually sympathized with some of his answers to the questions. But initially I came to him because I realized he is great for identifying what questions we need to ask. Um, and, And that's sort of how I stumbled into it initially. That's fascinating. The right questions and then the, the good questions. That is uh, that's how it all begins, really. <laughs> that's how you write a dissertation, at least. Yeah, you know, right. I, don't, I don't know if everything <laughs> begins that way. Well, thank you, Evan. This has been wonderful and fascinating, and uh, I appreciate your coming on the show today. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.